0: Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. We'll be in chapter 3 this morning, the first six verses. Uh, You can be in prayer for Timothy Martin, our pastoral resident who opened our service this morning. He will preach next week's sermon. And if we've been working slowly through a part of this book over the last few weeks, he'll preach the rest of chapter 3, which goes together as a unit. Well, I imagine, if you're in Christ, that before the year is out, faithfulness to Jesus will require great courage from you. Courage in the face of perhaps those who are leaving off faithfulness, perhaps of those who are mocking faithfulness to the crucified and risen man Jesus, perhaps courage in the face of your own temptation to sin and to leave off Christ, but courage nevertheless, maybe before the month is out, maybe before the week is out, well, the rest of the month is shorter than the week, but either way, it's coming. Faithfulness will require great courage. Where will we get the strength for it? Let's read together Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, our text for the morning. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And this is God's word for us. This morning. Well, there's been a contrast of pictures that you may have caught in your newsfeed over the last few months, a contrast of pictures between two leaders. This past week, a headline What Causes Armies to Lose the Will to Fight? Here's what history tells us, and what Putin may soon find out. Now, from our distance, from the field of battle and strategy rooms, we always just have to read news for what it is. Um, We have little details, little insight. These things change, and there's always propaganda. But this claim that Putin's army, for various reasons, is losing heart, seems legitimate. And this piece reflects on the history of armies, that lose heart. Sources for both fear and panic are varied, but this particular researcher, this author, is consulting, and other historians say that throughout history of warfare, there are at least three reasons why armies lose the will to fight. They lose faith in their cause. Uh, This gentleman who commanded the battalion during the Gulf War in the early 90s, saw so many Iraqi soldiers surrender that his unit had trouble accommodating the prisoners. Many Iraqi soldiers simply didn't think Kuwait or Iraqi's brutal leader was worth dying for. There was one instance where Iraqi soldiers surrendered to a drone that was circling over them. Uh, The Afghani army recently collapsed as the U.S. pulled out and allowed the Taliban to quickly take over. Over. If you ask a Taliban soldier, uh, quote, what the hell are you fighting for? Which is what you may ask a soldier giving his life, he would say, I'm fighting for my free country, to free my country from crusaders, just like my grandfather freed the country from the Soviets, like my great grandfather freed the country from the British, and I'm fighting for my religion, my country, and my home. Ask the Afghan soldiers, and he may say, I'm fighting for my paycheck if the company commander doesn't steal it. A second reason armies fail. They lose faith in their leaders. Every war has its defining images. The Ukraine war has already yielded some unforgettable ones showing the contrast of leadership styles of President Vladimir Putin and his Ukrainian counterpart Zelensky. recent photo of Putin typically show him Attired in a suit, alone at the head of an absurdly long conference table, in a large sterile room with a general or bureaucrat cowering at the other end. The caption could well read, Paranoid and isolated dictator in action. In contrast those images of Putin with those of Zelensky. One shows him standing resolute with a circle of advisors at night in Kiev after vowing not to abandon the city even though he and his family were in danger. Another reason would be they lose their backing of their country, and there's stories related to that. But to this matter of a leader, they say soldiers don't expect generals or other leaders to hunker down in the frontline trenches with them, but they want to know if their leaders care for them and respect their sacrifice. Alexander was leading his parched army through an unforgiving desert in pursuit of an enemy when scouts returned to him with a scoop of precious water and a helmet, and they handed it to him. The helmet in front of his army, and Alexander the Great thanked the soldiers and then in full view of his troops poured the water on the ground and announced he would not take any water unless all of his men had the same. His troops cheered. Alexander the Great never lost a human battle. So extraordinary was the effect of this action that the water wasted by Alexander was as good as a drink for every man in the army, one chronicler wrote later. I think this is something of how this passage functions for us today and for the church. That Jesus is for us a very great example of faithfulness to God. And an example for us in more than merely showing us what it looks like. Remember, Jesus is the pioneer of our salvation. The author of it. He he not only blazes a trail to show us where to go. But he calls us into faithfulness. And our courage for faithfulness in the face of trouble. For Jesus' name. Is compelled by Jesus' own faithfulness. In the face of trouble. For God's sake and ours. The key... To our faithfulness, when it begins to come with costs and therefore requires great courage in the face of those costs, is to look to Jesus, to consider Jesus who was himself faithful. This is a message about Jesus' example for us of faithfulness. Now, last week, we spoke about the atonement. What Jesus did for us on the cross, which was the culmination of his life and obedience and suffering. And we said that the heart of the cross is not Jesus' example of love or even his example of obedience. And the heart of the cross is not that there he defeated death and our enemy the devil. That the very heart of the cross, the irreducible thing without which the other benefits do not come is that Jesus dies in the place of sinners. His death is not directed at the devil in the first place to defeat the devil, or at you and me to provide a moral example that we might follow. It is in the first place directed at God in absorbing his wrath against us. And he is a high priest in the service of God. So we do not pit Jesus against God, the good one who loves us, who jumps in the way of the Father who hates us. That is not the case. No, this was the, our Trinitarian Lord's plan from all eternity to redeem a people for himself. That the Son would be sent and would willingly go there to take the wrath of God against sinners. So that God could be just and we could be justified. Nevertheless, Jesus' work does serve for us as an example. And as an example to those who have been made new by his life and death and resurrection, the sending of the Spirit, his example actually works on us. And this morning we consider his example of faithfulness. This message is in a message concerning Jesus' example. It is part, this passage is, of an overall flow in the letter. Uh, Numerous Words and images in this passage are echoes of the things that we have heard over the weeks prior. Were we to read the book up to this point, we would hear threads and images and themes moving forward to that of a household, that of brothers which we are called. The Son, the creator of all things spoken of here in that way. A deliverer. But it also looks forward for here in chapter 3, we are in a coherent letter or even a sermon, the book of Hebrews is. The beginning of chapter 3 begins the first extended argument in the book. You could say chapters 1 and 2 were warming, warming the oven up, warming us up to receive now the rest of the, the body of the book of Hebrews, which begins here in chapter 3. And this is for those who belong to Jesus. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, let us not miss the direct address, the ones to whom the author is speaking. And this is as well addressed to you and me, even us. Holy brothers and sisters, purified by the blood of Jesus, Who sat down at the Father's right hand after making purification for sins. Sanctified by Jesus. Made family. Sons of the Father for we are brothers with the Son. And we have a heavenly calling. Christ who shared with us in flesh and blood did so in order that we might share with Him... In a heavenly calling. All that this book calls us to. Salvation and a life transformed by the knowledge of God. This book is for those who are family. Those who are recipients of a heavenly calling. And those who hold a particular confession. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. This is the only time in the scriptures when Jesus is referred to as an apostle, a sent one, one sent, messenger. And he is that. As he faces us, he represents God to us as the one who brings the message of God to us. He is God's message to us, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. As we read this morning, the the very word of God, Jesus is the self-expression of God, and that way he is God. But he's also the high priest of our confession. He represents God to us as God's apostle, but he represents us to God as our high priest. He is our mediator, our go-between. And those two words are a way of summarizing what he's preached to us so far in these first two chapters. And this book, this message this morning, this example of Jesus is for those who are holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling and those who consider Jesus by way of confession to be our apostle and great high priest. That confession, an overt and clear and public identification with Jesus may well have referred to that confession that would be made on the occasion of one's baptism, that coming out in public as identified with the crucified and risen Lord, that symbol by which we go underwater and come up in order to symbolize that we have been joined to Jesus in his death and his resurrection so that with him we've died and with him we are raised to new life. Baptism does not save us, but symbolizes all that does, that precious good news that is in Jesus. This book is for those people. This book is for us. We'll take the rest of this passage in two parts. First, we're going to consider carefully the faithfulness of Jesus And that's most of what the passage calls us to do, but it leads to, at the very end here, an exhortation to consider carefully our faithfulness to Jesus, and we'll consider what it means to be faithful, and we'll consider our own faithfulness to Christ. So first we consider the faithfulness of Jesus, verses 1 through the first half of verse 6 consider Jesus. The author writes, consider Jesus. I just love how simple that is. There is more to say to you this morning. We have a whole paragraph here. But in two words, it would be consider Jesus. And that's a simple way of putting the Christian life. It is a life lived in consideration. Of the Son of God and all that He is for us and all that He has done for us. Consider Jesus. He tells us to consider Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest of our confession, who was faithful to Him, who appointed Him. We might this morning give our attention to Jesus' faithfulness to us even as we've rehearsed that he was for us a faithful apostle, we could say, messenger from God, and he's a faithful high priest, certainly. And there are other instances, even in this book, where the faithfulness of God is a motivator for our own obedience. I'll read just two. Well, there are just two exactly that use this this word. In chapter ten twenty three. you don't need to turn there, but We're exhorted to hold fast the confession of our faith, confession of our hope, without wavering. And where do we find the strength to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering? For he who promised is faithful. So the faithfulness of God is a motivation for holding fast to our confession without without wavering. And in chapter 11, there is an instance as well. Chapter 11, verse 11 By faith, Sarah, Abraham's wife, herself received power to conceive, even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Here, Sarah and Abraham believe the word of God. They consider God faithful. That's another way to define what it means to believe, to consider God faithful. To believe his word, to trust that it's good. And she and Abraham trusted that God's word was was good. And so we can trust that God's word is good. God's faithfulness is commended to us. His faithfulness to himself and to his own word and to the promises that he makes to us. But this morning's passage leads us in a bit of a different direction. Consider Jesus, verse 2, who was faithful to him... Who appointed him. Consider Jesus who was faithful to his father. Jesus who obeyed and trusted his father in everything. Today, Jesus' faithfulness is commended, not, not in its point of focus toward us, but his faithfulness toward God. Well, if we're going to consider Jesus who is faithful, how might we go about that today? How might we spend our time? Well, let us let the text direct us. What does faithfulness mean? What faithfulness? Faithfulness in what? Faithfulness in the face of what? Well, he says, Consider Jesus who was faithful to him appointed him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So we have here another character, Moses. Apparently, knowing Moses and understanding who Moses is and how Moses was faithful will help us to understand Jesus' faithfulness to him who appointed him. And so we want to meditate on this man, Moses, who he was and what what he did and how he was faithful. And we'll do that by way of comparison how Moses and Jesus are alike, and by way of contrast, those ways in which Jesus and Moses are not alike. Let's start by way of comparison. Jesus was like Moses. Who was Moses and how was he faithful? Well, Moses was that great towering character in our Old Testament. I want to say the greatest And then I think of Adam, who fell, but as a character in the story, is non-negotiable. Abraham, to whom all of God's promises were made and from whom they flow. Even as God comes to Moses in a burning bush, he's coming to the God of Abraham, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then David, so great years later, is great because all of God's promises to Abraham will be routed through him. And all that God will do in undoing what Adam did in sin will be done through David. So it is hard to pick, but you need to know the names, Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David. But for various reasons, you could make the case that Moses is that singular greatest character of the Old Testament story. Consider his providential beginning as he was born under the sentence of death. The Pharaoh, suspicious of the growing numbers among the Israelites whom he had enslaved during the famine... Now issues an edict to have all of the firstborn in the land killed. And Moses is born on that occasion. But his mother fears the Lord and places him in the water and sends him down the Nile. Only to be found by Pharaoh's daughter and adopted by her. And he was Pharaoh's grandson in Pharaoh's house. And he grows up there to discover later that he is a Hebrew with a heart for his people and he goes to his people and the story of his beginnings which are providential give way to the story of his role and leadership among the people of Israel and he was for them an apostle and high priest he was an apostle and that he was God's messenger everything God would say to his people he said through the man Moses He came to Moses in that bush that would not be consumed and spoke to him and gave to Moses his personal name, Yahweh, I am. And if Israel was to hear from God, they would hear from God, from God's man, Moses. Moses was a lawgiver. He would receive the law on Mount Sinai and he would come down to give the law to the people. And the law for the people of God was not, it was a heavy thing, but it was life for them. It was God's grace to them. It was God's covenant for them, made at that Mount Sinai only after he delivered them through the Red Sea and from Pharaoh's army by means of Moses, who parted the Red Sea. Everything big that God did for his people in that generation, he did through Moses. And everything that he would do later, he did through the pattern of what he did through Moses at the Exodus. Consider with me how Moses is spoken of. I'll turn to Exodus chapter 33. It's easy enough to get there. You're welcome to turn there with me. The second book of the Bible, Exodus 33, verse 7 through 11. I just want you to watch What Moses is doing in God's plan and how he's responded to. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. This is the tent of meeting with God. Moses was the boss of that. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent to meet with God. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand on the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak to Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Joshua, who would pick up where Moses left off after his own death. So here, the way that God is bringing heaven down to earth the way that the gate back into Eden, the way back to God for a sin-cursed humanity, that way is through the man Moses and the covenant established through Moses with the people, even at the tent that Moses managed, where he went in to speak with God. It says face to face. What an amazing truth. We sing about an immortal and an invisible God yet who reveals himself to us in Jesus, but then in that prefigured, shadowy kind of way, something was going on with Moses that we taste even now in the preaching of Christ. Face to face, that's Moses. Imagine watching from your tent door as Moses would go into this tent, and all the people worshipped, what a soaring occasion that would be, everything good that God was doing spiritually for his people, and the, the renewal of the whole world and the undoing of the curse was, going, was coming about through his man, Moses, and what he was doing for his people. Even consider Moses' death, turn two books to the right, to Deuteronomy chapter 34, This is the death of Moses, the occasion of Moses' death and burial. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. I mean, how could that be? It's suggested that the reason why we don't know precisely where Moses was buried, and the reason they didn't know, this would be an editor of a book Moses composed, didn't know, is to avoid the prospect of the people worshiping this man. It's the only occasion in which it's, it's indicated so clearly that his burial place is, is unknown. unknown. No, to lose Moses was huge. and the beginning of Joshua, one page over, begins this way. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of man, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and this people, into the land that I am giving them, to the people of Israel. And Joshua picks up where Moses left off. Joshua, that great savior of the Old Testament, who brings the people into the land. There could be no greater commission or occasion for the beginning of a book than Moses is dead, my servant, now you will serve me in his place. Let's go back to the book of Hebrews now. All of that is to say, and to paint a bit of a picture... Of how towering a figure Moses would be in the imagination of the people of God. Consider how uh, revered Moses was even among the Pharisees and first century Judaism. Moses was almost worshipped as a God, his words were. But of course they missed the point which is Jesus which we will get to. Moses, a towering figure. Consider Jesus, the author says, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Jesus was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. He was faithful. He was this towering figure, and now let's consider his faithfulness as a towering figure. Turn with me to the book of Numbers. I should have had you stay back there, so sorry. The fourth book of your Bible Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman, and they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And there the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came before forward. And he said, hear my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in my house. So you have complaining here about Moses. And you had grumbling in chapter 11. It's a chapter earlier in verses 4 through 6. The rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And all the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, I hate those. And melons, I really don't like melons. The leeks, the onions, I also don't like those. And the garlic. But now our strength is dried up. And there is nothing at all but manna to look at. The Lord fed them with food to provide for them in the wilderness after having delivered them from their hard service. Things always look better when you look back. Sometimes they look worse. In this case, they look worse. They look back and long for the days of Egypt, Moses is criticized. You can imagine his position of leadership. Lord has spoken to him from a bush, and he's delivered the law to the people, and they have been unfaithful here and there and all the time, it seems. There have been some good days. But on the whole, the pattern is that of stubbornness and of grumbling and complaining. And to the extent that that's directed toward God, God, it actually goes through him. It's directed also at Moses. So consider the temptation to leave off faithfulness to God and to give up. And he was tempted to do so. But the Lord was gracious with him and revealed himself to him, even came down and defended him. In verse 7, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house, Now back to Hebrews chapter 3, consider Jesus who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So now you have a bit of the context. Faithfulness in what? Well, faithfulness as an apostle and priest and faithfulness despite the objections and opposition of, the, of others. Faithfulness that required great courage. That he would consider his God faithful. As he considered obedience to the word of God. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Even faithful when he felt alone in his faithfulness. And when he was And so Jesus was faithful to his father when all others abandoned the word of God. What is the cross but that moment at which the people of God and God's priesthood and those who claimed his name had abandoned him and then crucified the very Lord. No, on the cross, Jesus is the only one left. He is, in effect, that only faithful remnant. And he is faithful to the Father unto death, sacrificing himself on that mountain, as in a shadowy way Abraham had sacrificed been willing to Isaac later. But this time there would be no substitute for him. He was obedient to the point of death. Jesus was faithful. Jesus has suffered in every way we suffer yet without sin. And we follow a leader who has been here and who has done that and who is faithful in it all, a trailblazer, and one who calls us to go where he has gone. Jesus, in that way, is like Moses. So you see, the comparison with Moses here is with Moses' faithfulness. And so when we come to a point of contrast... We've had a comparison, now a point of contrast. The ways in which Jesus is not like Moses, we might, if we're working a little formula in our head, think, Jesus is greater than Moses, Moses sinned, Jesus didn't. You'd be right about that. But we do have to turn the dial down on these little mantras, true as they are, trustworthy sayings, to make sure we're hearing the passage right. Because in this case, no shade is thrown on Moses at all. In fact, it's precisely Moses' faithfulness that is highlighted by way of comparison. And now by way of contrast, it's not that Jesus is uh, is not a sinner and Moses was. It is that Jesus has an entirely different rank than Moses did. If Moses was a commanding officer in the field of battle, then Jesus is the president. Jesus is chief of the army on his horse with us. Jesus is the one who has himself gone there. But he has an entirely different rank, and that is the point of contrast. Verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now, here's our first of two illustrations. So how is, Moses, how is Jesus different than Moses? We're considering Jesus. We're considering his faithfulness. We need courage in the face of our own troubles. We're going to find it by looking to Christ. We see that he's like Moses, and Moses was awesome. But we see that he's greater than Moses. And how? Well, let's see here. God was building a house through Moses And by house, we don't mean physical structure. We mean a people. He was building a people through Moses. But thinking about that whole house building illustration for a moment, which is what he's doing, think about a building. A building can be a glorious structure, an architectural marvel, built to withstand all kinds of insane weather, Earthquakes in San Francisco, to tower above the clouds, to carry all kinds of life and be more than functional but beautiful, a pillar of mirrored glass in the sky. There are all kinds of architectural expressions that we might fascinate ourselves with on a tour of the world, even a tour of one foreign land, even one tour of one foreign city, Rome as one example with its columns and its Colosseum. But how much greater is the builder and the architect of a structure than the structure itself? For that very structure with all of its complexity and beauty has come from the mind of its designer. That is an astonishing thought. Moses is just a part of the house. The builder? Oh, he's greater. Parenthetical statement here, verse four for every house is built by someone, of course. We know this, but the builder of all things is God. Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And that's a way in which you can meditate on Moses and watch Moses on the pages of your Old Testament. And as you read the stories to each other and to your children, parents, and consider that Jesus is greater than Moses and that he was not sinful as Moses was, and there are those moments but don't miss Moses' great faithfulness in the role that he plays, but consider that that's nothing kind of like the building to the builder. And Jesus is worthy of much more glory, for he is as a builder compared with a building. That's our first illustration. It's a helpful one. And there's a second one also keying off this idea of a house, since it's on our mind and all, but now thinking in terms of family Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So Moses was faithful as a servant. Now again, we don't need to think, oh yeah, Moses, just a little servant servants there in the background who cares about the servant hirelings uh, uninvested that's not the imagery here think rather uh, an intern to the president an intern to the president doesn't consider their job to be measly meager have to take out the trash and take notes in meetings why am i here I should be the, pre- no, the, an intern to the President of the United States has an incredible opportunity and they're grateful for every minute of it, even as they're serving. Or think of uh, a, a clerk to a Supreme Court justice. I got a tour once of the Supreme Court with some friends. We knew somebody who was clerking for one of the justices. And he gave us a little tour and uh, he was late 20s, sharp young man, and uh and, and had a bright future. Why? Why do we even know that? Well, he was a clerk for the Supreme Court justice. Some percentage of them were clerks of Supreme Court justices at one point. No, to be in a role like that is to have a future. To be a role like that is a great honor, in other words. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, so he was a good servant. An amazing role, a privileged role. He was faithful at it. And what was his role? To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now that's interesting. What was his role as a servant? Well, his message was to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So that's one way to express Moses' relationship with Jesus. You're reading your Old Testament. You're reading any one of the first five books. What Moses is doing and leading in and wrote as Israel's historian Well, what was the point of Moses' job? What was he appointed to do? What was his role as a servant? Well, it was in part to testify and to speak concerning the greater prophet that would come later. And he did. He spoke precisely that way of a prophet that would come later who is greater than himself. Moses' job was to speak of Christ. And so he did. God's messenger. If the first two chapters of this book of Hebrews argued that the Son is greater than angels, which is to say the angels were God's messengers with great messages from God for His people, but the Son is God's message for His people. And if angels were the great messengers, plural of the Old Testament, Then Moses is that greatest messenger among them all, among Old Testament messengers, the greatest Old Testament prophet. And so the argument of the book is building, and we enter an argument that Moses, Jesus, excuse me, is greater than Moses. Now, the first readers may have needed a little bit of help to put Moses in proper perspective, because they would have thought so much of Moses as to be tempted to default to Moses' writings and message and leave off Christ. But of course miss the point of Moses' message. What he's not saying is make less of Moses and as much as you're making of Jesus. What he's saying is consider how much you make of Moses and consider how much greater Jesus is. Now that's the same message for us as well. But some of us have to do and we all have to do the work of growing in biblical literacy to see how great Moses was in the first place. And so my encouragement for you as you read your Bibles is to consider that everything that you are reading is building so that you might better apprehend the glory and the greatness of Jesus, who is the fulfillment of all of the stories and moments and events and people of our Old Testament. So that you might hear these words and cry out in praise to God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And oh yes, there is a difference between a servant and a son. And Jesus didn't just go before us as a pioneer, one who is faithful to the Father, but he is himself son of the Father over the house of God. Now, great courage is needed for the Christian life. Great courage. Great courage is needed for faithfulness. The account of Stephen in the book of Acts is given, where he is giving his very life in order to stay faithful to his Lord and we see that story in Acts chapter seven. You don't need to turn there, but I will read a portion of it. And I have to believe this is one of the, reason, one of the reasons these stories are given to us so that our encourage, our courage, may be strengthened, so that we may have hope, so that we may be faithful. Stephen preaching about Moses. This Moses, verse 35, whom they rejected saying, who made you ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him from the bush. He's testifying concerning Jesus and gets himself in great trouble toward the end of the chapter. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him, but he... Full of the Holy Spirit. He gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. And this book, the book of Hebrews, will call us to follow those who have had faith in the promises of God. At great cost, some who were sawn in two. But ultimately, to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. So that it is Jesus' example of faith and faithfulness to the Father in enduring the cross for the joy set before Him that compels our faithfulness and gives us courage in the costs that stand before us. And so we move from considering the faithfulness of Jesus now to considering our faithfulness to Jesus. The second half of verse six. To land the whole paragraph, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence. And our boasting in our hope. Here we have at the end of this paragraph. Commending to us the faithfulness of Jesus. A call to faithfulness to Jesus. To hold fast our confidence. That is to the confession that we have made. That he is our apostle. The one sent from God. God's word. And that he is our high priest. To to hold fast our confidence in that confession, and our boasting and our hope, which springs from that confession and that truth. This is a verse about perseverance in a book that's about perseverance. We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And his purpose isn't to spin you around and scare you as to whether you're a Christian or not. I'll make a moment about that in a moment. It is to compel you and draw you into faithfulness. To compel you to hold fast for dear life to the Lord Jesus, so friend, hold fast for for dear life to the Lord Jesus. Perseverance will require all hands on deck. All hands on deck. We are His house. We are His house. Who are the people of God? That blood-bought, Jew-Gentile, multinational, international people, the church. God's house. We are God's house. Here's a verse that speaks to our assurance and perseverance that is in the plural. We. We are God's house. If indeed we hold fast something we do together about which we will hear about more. Next week, this week's sermon was a positive example of faithfulness, whereas next week's ex- sermon is on a negative example, an example of unfaithfulness. Timothy will bring that word for us. Perseverance requires all hands on deck. It, it grows our assurance that we are His. You see that? if we, we are His house now. It's true that right now we are God's people if we indeed hold fast our confidence ongoingly in the future. Now, our confession of Jesus as an apostle and high priest and our Savior who has died and rose for us is not a work that we bring to the table that we combine with Jesus' work. But laying hold of Jesus' work is, as for us and keeping hold of it is required for Salvation. Faith that saves, that is truly sincere, holds fast its confidence and its boasting and its hope. So that we can say Judas was not actually sincerely Jesus's. And his sincerity isn't really even the matter. He wasn't Jesus's. The Apostle Paul will speak of a man named Demas who abandons the faith. Some will go out from us. To prove they never were among us. And that's what he's saying here. Our assurance and our confidence, in other words, is a thing we have at the point of salvation when we confess Christ. And it is a thing that grows in the course of life as we hold fast to Christ. So that you can be more sure you are his as the years move on. Never to relax, but ever to hold fast your confidence. Perseverance is all hands on deck. It grows our assurance that we are His. It is fundamentally a matter of the heart. We hold fast our confidence in boasting and our hope. Our sin against one another and against the Lord and is ultimately downstream from a posture in the heart that is unfaithful to God that does not trust in the faithfulness of God. And so the great prayer for our children and for one another is not in the first place that they would not leave Christ and then fall into sin, but that they would not fall into sin and so leave Christ. We are His house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. What makes us special as God's people, as his house, is that we are a people who have hope and who boast in it. A family may be proud of their team. A nation may be proud of its military and its flag. The church is proud of its Christ of its confession. Perseverance, in the last place, involves hard work. Hard work to hold fast, but it is empowered work as we are given the example of Jesus who has blazed a trail for us. Friends, Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him. You be faithful to him from heaven who has called you. Let's pray. Father, we we give you thanks for this exhortation to faithfulness, to hold fast. We give you thanks for the example of Jesus who is faithful to you And we pray for help. We pray for compulsion as we look to Jesus and consider him to be faithful ourselves. And we thank you that you've left us with more than a command or this exhortation, but you have given us the Bible and even parts of the Bible which preach parts of the Bible to us. In this case, Moses' faithfulness, that we might see Jesus is faithful, that we might follow in his steps.